podcast is a quest for well-being, a quest for a meaningful life through the exploration of fundamental truths, enlightening ideas, insights on physical, mental, and spiritual health. The inspiration is love. The aspiration is to awaken new ways of thinking that can lead us to a new way of being. Being well. Welcome to Body, Mind, and Soul Healing Conversations. John Stewart's testimony before Congress reminded America, in scathing terms, of their responsibility to 9-11 first responders. But the effects of that day spread to nearby residents as well. Carolyn Glasso Bailey owned an art gallery in Lower Manhattan, and years later in Los Angeles, she was diagnosed with brain cancer. Her doctors told her it was most likely due to her proximity to Ground Zero. When John Stewart took to C-SPAN, it moved Lila Glasso Francis, her sister, to finally release the book she wrote about Carolyn's journey. When Carolyn is diagnosed with glioblastoma brain cancer, Lila is unaware of the complexity of the diagnosis and unprepared for the devastating path to come. When she was told she had cancer, Carolyn opted into treatment, even knowing it might change her personality. At that time, Lila went to search for a book to help her understand what her sister was going through and what her family should expect. She couldn't find anything to support her, so she wrote the book she needed at the time to support others in their journey. The situation takes readers on an emotional and intense journey that explores the lifelong bond between siblings and the aching loss of deep relationship. Like When Breath Becomes Air by Paul Kalanithi and Being Mortal by Atul Gawande, it deals intimately with the choices terminal patients face and the effects of those choices on those who love them. In this episode, Valeria Tellis interviews Lila Glasso Francis. Lila was born in Minneapolis in the 1970s and was the first Glasso sister to leave the Midwest. She enrolled in SMU's Meadows School of the Arts in 1990, where she was offered a full scholarship in their Bachelor of Fine Arts program. She graduated in 1994 and moved to Los Angeles, California. In L.A., Lila sold a screenplay, Peg and Cheryl, provided character voices for animated television shows, the most notable Family Guy, renovated real estate, and ran the personal lives of producers, studio heads, and CEOs. Lila is the recipient of a McKnight Fellowship, the Wellesley Book Award given to young women of leadership, and is also a graduate of Breck School. She appeared professionally in regional theater in both Minneapolis and Los Angeles. Lila has been a long supporter of the arts, beginning her fine art collection in 1995 with the help of her sister, Carolyn Glasso. After the death of her sister Carolyn, 
Lila helped found alongside her brother-in-law, Christopher Bailey, the Carolyn Glasso Bailey Foundation. This nonprofit art charity continues to keep Carolyn's artistic enthusiasm, fierce generosity, and innovative spirit alive throughout the fine art world. Her book, The Situation, was released on May 5th, 2020 in honor of her sister Carolyn and National Brain Cancer Awareness Month. Here is the interview with Lila Glasso Francis. In your own words, who is Lila Glasso Francis? I am a mother, I am a wife, I am a writer, I am a designer. I'm a vegetarian and I'm an animal lover. <laughs> that sounds so good. Thank you. <laughs> um, I have a few warm-up questions for you before we talk about your book, The Situation. The first question is, what is life? Wow. Uh, starting out with a bang <laughs> there. Um, and, you know, that question is so really profound during this time in the world right now. I think life is a journey that we move through and hopefully, and if we're lucky, with those that we love. What do you think is the opposite of life? Uh, not feeling, obviously, death, not having our eyes open and having a, a, a world view. I like that. You used the word open. Yeah, not being open, right. What is the meaning of freedom to you? I guess the meaning of freedom to me would be getting to create a path for myself that is based on my desires, my goals, and my needs. You know, and that's, that's a challenge as a, a, a parent and a wife and a child and a sibling, but But when, the, when that goes together with relationships, I guess that would be ultimate freedom. I agree. That makes me think about the house. I assume you're, you're living, you're trying to live that kind of life. How do we do it? You know, first of all, I want to say I live in Ojai, California, which is a wellness town. And so I'm really lucky to be where I am because our whole community here is based on wellness and good living and health. I'm able to live a very free life here in terms of every aspect. Um, even during quarantine for the pandemic, we've been really lucky to have big wide open spaces and fresh air and hikes out our back door. When grocery stores were low on food, I had neighbors with chickens and lettuce And we've been able to really live off the earth. And that obviously creates a great profound um, message to us, you know, that the earth is here to provide and that we're able to have this freedom in this little town that maybe we didn't realize to the extent that we're realizing now. How wonderful. Yes. Really, truly wonderful continue with my warm-up questions. What is another word for healing? Another word for healing, I think, would be self-care. I know that's two words, but I'm going to say it's one. 
because I think that you can't fully heal unless you're really going to truly face yourself. Mm, self-care. Do you connect self-care to self-love? I do. I do connect it to to self-love, but I, I do think you can love yourself and not care for yourself. And I do think for true healing, you need to find ways to actually care for yourself. Yes, I agree. What do you think is the world's greatest need at this time? Our greatest need right now, honestly, is health. I mean, at this moment, at this time, it's that's, you know, this is, we're recording this during our stay, stay at home directives. And basically right now it's, it's, it's all of us keeping ourselves healthy so we can heal the world. When you say health, do you also include emotional and mental health? I really do. And um, I have children at the house and we, we had a really profound dinner the other night where we, we've been in quarantine almost four weeks in my house. And we went around the table and said, what are our 10 pros and 10 cons of staying at home? And, and it was such a good exercise because there were tears, there was laughter, but just communicating and getting it out. I think that really helps to create, you know, mental wholeness and um, makes everyone have the, the freedom to discuss how they're feeling mentally as much as they are physically. Right. Yeah, that's great that you included communication and uh, connection that definitely promotes um, emotionally mental health. What is love to you, Myla? I think love is deep understanding. And sometimes love can be felt with a deep understanding when we really don't know the other person. Sometimes your soul can just know that person and you can have Sort of like when you feel instant love or instant friendship even with someone or uh, that connection, it's because you feel deeply understood or you feel the possibility of being able to feel deeply understood by that other person. Yeah. You mentioned the soul. What is the soul to you? I think the soul is really who we are. I love one time um, when my daughter was little she had a chicken that died and she was very upset. And it was the first time she had really lost a pet. And her preschool teacher said, it is so sad, but your chicken, Tasha, did not need her body anymore. She just needed her soul. And that uh, to me was just the best example of what a soul is because we aren't our bodies. We are our souls. And that, so I guess our, our souls would be our true selves. Yeah, and that brings me to the question about spirituality and God. What, where, and who is God? Well, that's an interesting question. You know, I grew up in the Midwest as a Lutheran, <laughs> uh, which is, you know, a little more laid back of the Christian religions. But, but I grew up believing that God was kind of like a person. And as I've, I've grown older, I, I realize, especially from living in Ojai and, and living really in beautiful nature, that God is everywhere. God isn't a person. God is um, what surrounds us. It is a power higher than us that we can't understand. It is a power higher than us that we can call upon in times of need. I like that. Yeah. Do you connect that to intuition, to the inner voice? 
You know, honestly, I think sometimes I do, sometimes I don't. I want to say that I feel like my inner voice as a mother and a woman is maybe much stronger than a voice of God in my ear. Oh, wow. What's the difference? I think sort of when I'm, when I really meditate on hearing like the voice of a higher power, it's when I don't have the immediate answers with my own female intuition. But I find that in most circumstances, I do. Yeah, I like that. So you can count on that, on that inner voice, the female voice, right? Yes. And my last warm-up question, what is the purpose of your life? Well, that's really interesting because I don't think that I found the purpose of my life till after I was 40 and now I'm almost 50. But I think the purpose of of my life um, has a lot to do with why I wanted to write a book. And that was to realize that I could share experiences from my own life to help other people get through their lives, um, especially during circumstances that are very difficult to get through. And I think that that um, also manifests with uh, my purpose in life of being a mother. Uh, I raised my sister's um, son, my sister who passed away. Um, so my, my purpose of life is also raising my daughter and her son and guiding them, um, through the beginning of their life and their journey. That is wonderful. I keep saying that word because it is. <laughs> so let's talk about your work. Who was Carolyn Glassell Bailey? Carolyn Glassell Bailey was my sister. Um, I almost want to say is my sister because I'm one of those people who still talks out loud to her and I, I hear her voice. I hear her laughter still. Um, she uh, was a art dealer. Uh, she had a gallery in Minneapolis and one in New York. And uh, she lived in Ojai, where I live, as a place of retreat away from her busy, hectic schedule as an art dealer. She was diagnosed with glioblastoma brain cancer at the age of 46 and passed away four years ago from that terminal disease. Wow. Um, yeah, I'll be asking you more questions about the situation. That's the title of your book. What was the intention and the process of writing the situation? Well, I wrote the situation not as a book at first. I uh, to get through the grief of living with someone who is terminally ill, meaning I knew that the only outcome of her illness would be her death, was to journal. And I kept a journal every time there was something that I needed to say, which was, but I didn't really want to say to someone else. I just kind of wanted to work out for myself on paper. And I did that for the 14 months um, that she was really battling her disease and trying to hold on to life. And when I was done with that journal, I went to stay with a friend of mine who actually is the godfather for my daughter, a wonderful news producer named uh, George. George said, what have you been writing? And I, I shared it with him and he said, can I read part of it? And, and he did. And he said, you know, Lila, this is such a great journey of, of somebody going through illness with another person. And he said, I think it's very hard to read because, of course, parts of it were very sad. And 
he said, it would be so great if you put little chapters and memories of your lives with, of your life with your sister in between each chapter. And that was how the situation started. So the full title of the book is The Situation, A Radical Journey Through Sisterhood. And it flashes back from through the 1970s up till 2015, um, back at our 45-year our journey with one another. Um, and those flashbacks happen amidst the journey in the book of, of her treatment. It came to mind another question uh, for you that I, I didn't have here. <laughs> what is about writing that promotes healing and understanding or deeper understanding? You know, for me, because I can only speak to me, I know that um, I know a lot of people have different ways in which they write. Uh, One of the ways that I write is not just fresh writing every time I write. I actually read back some of the writing I've already done because there's a rhythm to it and a music to it that is meditative for me. And once I find that rhythm, that music of the writing, it continues me to write from the deepest part of me. And it's almost like when we spoke earlier about that inner voice in your head, it's that unfiltered, full heart feeling inner voice translated from my mind to the page. I try to not stop when I write. I just keep going. And then I go back and edit. Wow, that's uh, interesting that you mentioned rhythm that brings to mind music and harmony. So it's almost connecting all parts of us, mind, body, and soul. That's what music reminds me of, of harmony. Yeah, I think it's very, very similar. And I, you know, again, that's, you know, that's the methodic part of it for me. I don't know if it's that way for every writer, but for me, I feel like I've had a really good writing day when I've really felt that the rhythm sort of if I've if I've gone with the flow of the words coming out of out of my body to the page. I have another question. I just have yeah, do you write every day? Do you still write? I do write. I'm actually working on a second book right now that I'm about eleven chapters into, but I'm someone that writes for a very long time and then I take breaks. And for instance, with um, the book, The Situation, I put off writing the last chapter of that book, which was my sister's death for about six, six months, because uh, it was, I knew it was going to be hard to write. It was incredibly difficult to write. And I, I just was not able to deal with it for about six months. And then I sat down and wrote it. What do you write about these days? Well, my, my second book is actually uh, a fiction as opposed to a memoir. And it's about, it's called Lollipop Girls. And it's about a Midwest, a Midwest girl, based on me, of course, <laughs> <laughs> uh, moving from Minnesota to California into the wild world of Hollywood. That sounds interesting. <laughs> yes, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's actually more funny than I thought it would be. <laughs> oh, wow. Lila, that's a wonderful thing. Sense of humor, isn't it? So healing too. Yes. Laughter. Yes. So my next question has to do with brain cancer. What is the connection between brain cancer and 9-11? Well, I believe, as do many people, that there were huge effects of 9-11 on businesses and residents that lived around Ground Zero. 
Uh, my sister's gallery was in Chelsea, not far from 9-11. She worked out at the Chelsea Pier Gym. In fact, the morning of 9-11, she was working out at her gym and she saw people jumping out of the buildings. And she believed that a movie was being filmed because why would we ever be seeing, seeing that, right? So they say that the really toxic part for people of 9-11 was not the incident itself, but that the cleanup took so long. You know, those buildings were collapsed for a whole year in New York City. And I've told people this story before. When 9-11 happened, I was actually visiting my sister. There's a chapter of this in the book. My husband and I had had a wedding in, in Newport, Rhode Island, and we came into the city and sort of were going to hang out with her for two or three days before we had headed back to the West Coast. And 9-11 happened. And I remember, I think maybe two evenings into it, that we decided, well, we needed to go find some food because they had really closed off New York. And so people were calling saying, no, oh, there's food at this Mexican restaurant or there's food at this deli. Or, And we walked and I remember, and I will never forget this, I remember walking by New York garbage because it was garbage day in New York when they push all the bags to the curb. And I remember thinking, oh, that smells so sweet and good. Now, who would ever say that about New York garbage? But that's how bad the air smelled from 9-11, that the garbage in relation to it smelled sweet and good. Wow, that's amazing, Lila. So I think, you know, with my sister, um, what we realized and what we learned was that uh, immunity cancers like lung cancer, breast cancer, skin cancer, and brain cancer, glioblastoma specifically, um, had started coming into fruition for rescue workers, first responders first, about 11 years after the incident, uh, 10 to 11 years, and then 12 to 13 years for residents that lived in that area. There was a huge spike. I don't, I don't know um, exactly what it was, but I believe that it was 65% of a spike in those cancers. Um, so we all heard about John Stewart, the late night host, um, really going in front of Congress and saying, um, we really need funding to help these first responders who are dying, who are, or who are treating problems as a result of 9-11 because that funding was falling through. And hearing that, I realized that I needed to share Carolyn's story of this wonderful woman really in the high echelon of, of the art world selling art. And, you know, her gallery was reviewed often in the New York Times. And, and really, that was her dream to live in New York and run that gallery. And having that dream cut short because even though she then relocated and lived in California, here we are a decade later, and she, the signs of, of brain cancer were happening. <sighs> wow. Yeah, I, I don't have anything to say about that. Talk to me about the choices terminal patients face and the effect of those choices on those who love them. Well, I think we really go through just the full range of emotion with terminal patients when we're caring for them and living with them and going through diagnosis with them as much as they do. So at first, you know, they are and we are full of hope because that's really all that we have. 
And so even when someone is diagnosed with terminal illness, we are in denial, really, that that means death, that that means it won't be solved. And so those doctors that work at that level are really trained to give you hope. And you hope that, you know, I know with my sister, I hoped she was going to be the first person to recover from glioblastoma. So we, so the first part of that journey was finding doctors, doctor, the doctor that she felt offered the most hope was, you know, a, a wonderful team down at Cedar sinai in Los Angeles. They had had patients that had held on for five years. I guess with glioblastoma, the, if you don't get treated, you could be gone as soon as three months. The average lifespan, if you are treated, is about 12 to 13 months. My sister lived 14. She had three surgeries, uh, three brain surgeries within that time. And, and that journey is very difficult too, because who you are at the beginning of being ill and making your own choices is not who you are at the end of that. And we were, we were sort of naive about that because we didn't realize how much change there would be for her and for our family um, along her journey. Right. And that's great um, awareness. The book you wrote will help those who are not prepared for this situation, which is one of my questions about being prepared to lose someone we love, if this is possible. I'll ask you the question in a minute. I want to say something else about alternative and natural um, medicine. Did you ever think about that possibility, the combination of conventional and alternative medicine to help your sister? Of course we did. I mean, we live in Ojai, California, which is the alternative medicine capital of, the, of California, practically. Carolyn did uh, receive some cannabis treatments that really helped with pain. She did, of course, probably everyone we met gave us a different solution that they had heard would work. And you know, the, the, the hard part of it is that there were things that we could try that would help her along the way, ease the pain. Um, she even did, uh, had this wonderful doctor that she did visualizations with about the cancer who had had um, just great success with cancer people. So she was doing visualizations. She was doing for the pain, cannabis injections. But there, there, there is a point that you get to when you realize that brain cancer, like my sister had, is actually an immunity disease. So it's actually less like cancer and a little more like HIV, where the problem with glioblastoma is it's so scientific that no matter what you treat a glio tumor with, the tumor is so smart, it's able to morph and change to stay alive in the body. And so she ended up uh, being part of a really great Dr. John Wu's medical trial, which is something that I would say is your only hope to look to for terminal patients, is seeing what doctors are trying new things. You know, they've tried everything for brain cancer. They were injecting scorpion venom into people's tumors at, at one point. They so his trial had been very successful and she, she was trying new treatments through him and she was seeing an alternative medical doctor as well in Santa Barbara. So sort of like, you know, it was actually a really beautiful melding of wellness and uh, Chinese medicine with regular medicine. And she was, she was doing both and the whole team was communicating. 
But I think in the end, um, the alternative medicine was fantastic for pain and calming. But um, for treatment, the medical trial vaccine is what kept her alive longer. Oh, wow. I do have a question about what could have been um, done differently during 9-11. Yeah, that's really interesting. No one's ever asked me that. Well, I do know one of the things that really created the air being so bad in New York was the length of cleanup time it took. But I do know that the embers and temperature of the building really made it unable to be dealt with sooner. So maybe the answer to that would be a, a better cleanup and a cleanup of um, air testing had been included. I, I just think we were so out of our element in this country. You know, we are not a country prepared for attacks on our own soil that I don't, I don't know what could have been different, but I do know that the, the cleanup taking so long really uh, allowed that pollution in the air in New York to continue for a very long time. Talk to me about the purpose and the mission of the Carolyn Glasso Bailey Foundation. So the Carolyn Glasso Bailey Foundation is a really interesting art foundation that was actually started by artists. I'm the one that went with my brother-in-law to, of course, get our nonprofit status, but we did so because Carolyn was not only an art dealer, but she was a beloved art dealer. And she would help artists out when they couldn't afford to go to art fairs or create their new shows or things like that. She would help them uh, financially. She would help them by encouraging them to do works that they could sell, so they could act, that could sell, so so they could actually live and sustain themselves as artists. So after, when she died, about 38 artists came forward and they're still coming forward still um, in connection with her foundation, but they donated works that we sold in a show called Fierce Generosity, which is what we, how we described my sister as being a fiercely generous person. And that artwork was sold and created her nonprofit foundation, which now funds um, artists and it funds art education programs through its initiative, the Ojai Institute. And uh, we have two art awards that are given uh, per year to artists that are doing work. And we have residency programs in Ojai, California for artists as well. And all of that's done in her name through that foundation. That's really great. I'll be mentioning the, uh, the website at the end. I'll be asking you the question and we'll have the website there too. Thank you so much. Let's talk for a moment about grief. So I guess my question, the first one is about the process. What has helped you the most during the, uh, the process of griefing? And what profound lessons have you learned from this experience? I think what's helped me the most during my grief process was actually writing the book. And I edited the book with my 79-year-old mother. Uh, who, you know, had lost her firstborn uh, and was reading about it while we were editing our book. I, I had an, another professional editor also do it. But when I would was first just going through little changes, um, I would read each chapter aloud with my mother. And together for us, that helped us cry over what we needed to still cry about. And, you know, I'm a, it really made me a big believer in there isn't a timeline for grief. The times in which you think about that person, there might be times in between that grow a little further apart, but 
I still feel the depth of grief I felt the day my sister died. And I, I believe it's a falsehood to say that that goes away. But I can speak about her dying now because I've let so many emotions out already about that. I poured so many of those into the book and through the process of writing it. And I think that's the most important way to deal with grief is however you're able to express yourself, to let out that vulnerable part of you inside that's really feeling the loss is the best gift you can give yourself. Yeah, it resonates and makes a lot of sense to me. My next question is about, um, yeah, that question I wanted to ask you earlier. Is it possible that we somehow can prepare for losing someone we love? You know, I'm going to say no. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm going to say no, because I'll tell you what, I, I think you cannot prepare yourself for it, to me, it's the same correlation of saying, can you truly prepare yourself for motherhood? People can tell you, you can read a book, but no, you can't. I, I, for instance, when Carolyn was diagnosed, I had always been someone that when I was upset, I could eat a, a whole barrel of ice cream. I could eat, eat away my problems. So for the first time when Carolyn was diagnosed and, and we were super, super close siblings, it was the first time I, I had absolutely no appetite. I mean, to the point of which my husband would say, honey, can you please take three bites? Because I had never experienced that kind of grief, that kind of sadness. And my brain, I couldn't sleep, I couldn't eat. And I was not prepared for that because that had never happened to me before. But I, I think the best favor people can give themselves is to say, I don't know who I'm going to be at the end of this journey either. I don't know what the patient's going to be like, but I don't either because I haven't experienced this before, but I'm going to be open to finding ways to heal myself throughout the process, not just at the end of it. Mm. Yeah, you use that word again, open, right? That might be the key, right, in life or Mm -hmm. anything, just be open to anything that might happen, right? Open-hearted, open-minded. Yeah, I like that. And I have two more questions about grief. One is, how do we communicate and have a conversation with children about this kind of loss? Well, that's the really hard part because, especially like with my sister's son, who lived with us even at that point because she was going down to LA for treatments, he didn't understand that it was anything worse than a cold or the flu that someone would have and get better from. So, um, you know, I think that you, you stay really basic and you tell them what's happening. And as the days go, um, I think end gaining with children isn't beneficial. Um, we didn't talk about at the end what would happen. We just went day by day. This is what mom's going through and this is that. And when he had bigger questions, we tried to answer those. I, there was one point, it was Halloween, and her son Matson wanted this very expensive uh, sword and cape. And he, he had printed on the back, Sir Matson. And so, of course, I said, of course, you can have that. Let's, you know, let's get you that. And he wore it. And I, and he would run around the backyard fighting things in the air. And I thought, you know, 
what a brave little kid. He's the, he's, he's fighting all those demons that he's feeling around us. And he's the one that's brave enough to get out there with his place sword and do that. So, you know, I think a lot of, we tried to do a lot of physical activity to get things out because when you're that little, you can't talk about how you're feeling. And then we just went day by day. Yeah. Do you think that children are able to understand finally what will happen to basically all of us in this life? Is that something that they, what is the age even that we can have a conversation about that? Well, I don't, you know, I don't, I don't really know. I can speak to the fact that um, Matson was young enough that he sort of easily ebbed and flowed with the journey. Um, my, my daughter, who was two years older, um, she really knew something was going on and she had very deep questions about it. And I was very honest with her and it was very hard for her to hear those things. And there was at a point when I, I feel like I looked around the room and there was joy missing from the household. And I think you just have to know that that will happen, but it will return. We are, you know, we all still grieve about the loss of my sister. The foundation helps us continue her memory, which makes us feel like she's still contributing. But they've, and they both have not read the book. They have asked me to read the book when, when we get the book. So the book's being released May 5th and they are both getting their own copy um, now they are 15 and 13, so I feel they're um, old enough to be able to handle that. But, you know, there's never a right time to tell a child someone they love is dying. And um, it, it's really, you know, there was a large part of my journey that was really mad at the unfairness of the world with that. But, you know, these beautiful little spirits are still here carrying on and 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 being able to reminisce about such a wonderful woman. And um, together, that's been so comforting for all of us. I love what you said about honesty. That's uh, very important to be honest. Yeah. When children ask questions or be honest with ourselves and others. Yeah. Honesty. I love that. My last question about grief can joy and grief coexist? You know, I think what's interesting is that joy and grief can actually exist during a process like this. I mean, I had some of the funniest conversations of my life with my sister when she was terminally ill. Um, and really at the end with glioblastoma, her vocabulary was maybe 60 words. So we were, we were joke, my brother-in-law and I, that we were terrific at charades. And she would laugh at us because she'd be trying to tell us something. And so we'd be playing charades. And Mm -hmm. then you think, God, is it inappropriate that we're laughing? But even that was cathartic for the family, you know? So I would say the journey of grief is so much easier when you have someone going through it with you as well. So having my husband and my brother-in-law, two other adults going through it with me, we had moments of, of joy. We had moments of joy with Carolyn. And then after the fact, we have many moments of joy now, especially seeing the accolades of the kids. But I, you know, every graduation, every big moment for Matson, I still tear up wishing she was there with us. Um, it's interesting the way you spoke just now about joy moments. You call it moments, moments of joy. 
throughout the process, after. I'm wondering if grief, it's also moments. Would you say that too? For grief, moments of grief. Yes. I think there are moments of grief, moments of different levels of grief. I'm always remembering how I talk about at the end of the book that I I had been anticipating her death since the day of her diagnosis. But when the moment finally arrived, it hit me with that moment of grief that had such intense force. I thought there would be relief, but there wasn't. I was just overwhelmed with deep, unimaginable loss and the brutal reality that she was gone from my life forever. Thank you so much for your um, strength and the beauty in that. Well, thank you. I feel like the experience um, that I share in the book that I'm at the end of now really did teach me how strong I am as a person and as a woman and as a sister and a mother and a sister-in-law and as a wife. And I wish I had found that strength in my life earlier, but I hadn't. And this experience led me to find that strength that now I'm so deeply grateful for. How wonderful. It's interesting how life is. Sometimes we can only learn profound lessons through experience. There's no other way of learning them. And um, yeah. Would you like to add anything or read a passage in your book, Lila, before I ask you my final questions? That I'm going to read you the end of chapter 14, which is called Shwush. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder what that means. <laughs> well, yeah, there kept, I kept, you know, we talk about the rhythm of the book and the writing of it. And there was a rhythm to this journey. And I kept like, I kept here, my husband would skateboard and it would go back and forth, swish, swish, swish. <laughs> and I would, I would hear that sound in my head a lot through the treatment. And then Carolyn would tell me the MRI machine sounded like that as well. So um, uh, here we go. Dines is creating special joy back in Ojai. Dines is my husband. He has spent weeks accumulating supplies to build a skateboard ramp for our kids' friends. Dines loves skateboarding as much as they do. Driving up our friend's driveway, I spot the wooden ramp for the first time on the side of the old ranch farmhouse. It's shaped like the letter C, but sideways. Dines is standing on the right-hand side of the ramp and waves enthusiastically at me as we put the car into park. He has a helmet on and pads on his elbows and knees, just like Earl, our friend's 10-year-old son. Earl and his friends regularly call the house to see if Dines is available to hang out. He jumps at the chance most days, and Matson and Fliss, our children, go with him. Matson uses a scooter with handles, and Fliss attempts to learn to skateboard. Today, Dines is showing Earl some moves, like building up momentum, skating side to side so he can jump, while turning in the air when he finally reaches a high enough speed. Watching Dines is strangely therapeutic. He goes side to side, left to right, time and time again. His motion is smooth and the sound calming like waves. Swoosh, swoosh. Then suddenly the jump. I instinctively hold my breath as I watch his board leave the safety of the ramp top and soar into the air. I audibly inhale after he executes his turn and swiftly lands his board on the ramp floor. Matson has decided we should start decorating for Christmas before Thanksgiving. Given the year, I of course agree, and we start putting up the kids' craft tree in the family room. Matson's idea is to make a huge garland out of silly band bracelets that he's made over the past year. 
I wonder how many other families have silly band garlands on their trees. They look great. We add it to the craft collection, which includes ornaments from grandparents made in 1954 and ornaments I made in 1979. There are ornaments added from my brother-in-law's family, my husband's family, ornaments from our childhood home in Minnesota. Carolyn has decided she hates being alone in Los Angeles, and she begins to come home a few days a week when she can to be surrounded by family. It's hard driving back and forth, so Chris and I trade off taking her to treatments and appointments. I spend hours watching Jennifer Steinkamp's projected floral artwork in the waiting room of the Orshian Center while Carolyn undergoes radiation treatments. Jennifer is a friend of Carolyn's, and this artwork offers a comforting and calming way to pass the time. I often close my eyes during longer radiation sessions. I think of the flowers and the artwork moving back and forth. I picture dines on the skate ramp moving back and forth. I hear the swoosh, swoosh in my head. I instinctively hold my breath when I hear the lobby door reopen, finally exhaling as Carolyn reappears in the doorway. Her memory is worse after her treatments and much worse after the second surgery. But as I walk through the halls with her, holding hands, I see her memory of fine art hasn't gone away. Cedar Sinai has a phenomenal art collection, and Carolyn points to the pieces, telling me about them in her accomplished art dealer speak as we walk through the halls. That's it. I love your writing. <laughs> oh, thank you. Yeah, it goes back to that word again, honesty, being open, and the rhythm, the harmony. Yeah. It's your soul speaking, the body, the mind, and the soul together. How beautiful. Thank you. Oh, thank you. I have a few questions for you. The final questions, I would say, maybe four of them. What was the hardest lesson to learn about yourself? Oh, gosh. I think the hardest lesson for me to learn about myself was that sometimes I didn't deal with things in the healthiest way. You know, I, there's a chapter in the book where I, I wake up and I say, since when do I go to bed with a glass of red wine? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. You know, because yeah. sometimes, you know, I got to depths of, of lowness, lowness that I feel I had never reached before. My brother-in-law and I used to joke that we might have to go to Betty Ford Center after this experience because, of course, we all want to medicate ourselves. And so um, I didn't realize how much I would need to medicate myself. I think that got better with time. But I think initially to deal with the grief, you're just looking for anything that helps you get through. So I didn't know that about myself. But I, I I also didn't realize how calm I can be in a situation I thought I would panic more than I did. And I felt like I was able to be the voice of calm for the children. And that was a pleasant surprise for me. That made me think about a question that I didn't ask about grief being healthy and unhealthy. Do you believe that there is such a thing? I think it all is. I think we have to say to ourselves, we're all human, you know, and there's no perfect way to deal with this. Like there's no perfect way to deal with anything. Um, we make mistakes in grief like we make mistakes in love. Yeah, true. <laughs> and, and you know, you, you have to accept those mistakes and move on. Or you have to say, maybe it wasn't a mistake. Maybe it was part of the journey. Oh, wow. Yeah, and that's wisdom. Mm-hmm. Wisdom, wisdom. Three more questions I guess I have here. Um, if you knew you would die soon, meaning losing the body, would you make any change in your life or do anything differently? 
I would not because I have lived like that since my sister died. I'll tell you, we eat off my grandmother's sterling silver silverware every day. <laughs> and and we and we use the good we use the good glasses at dinner time and the and the good to rotate through the great plates because I realized there was no reason not to enjoy every every moment and everything available to us at that moment that she died. Yes. That's a wonderful answer too. Do you believe in life after death? I believe that there is something after death that our minds are too small to even realize. I do feel like I've heard Carolyn's wisdom. And I, so I do feel like that's coming from somewhere. I know that Einstein wrote, I believe, six volumes on there being um, different layers of life after this life. And um, that was really comforting for me to, to know when someone told me that. Um, and so I do believe there's different levels of existence after this life. Yes. Right. What are three things about life you know for sure? I know for sure life is easier when you have people to go through it with. That I know for sure. I know for sure that love doesn't end when someone dies. I know for sure that we are strong enough to get through everything if we can really stay centered as ourselves and tell the world around us and the people around us what we need. We are, we are stronger than we think. Yeah, I agree. It has been a wonderful conversation. Thank you so much for your presence, your wisdom, and the peace. I felt very peaceful <laughs> throughout the conversation. <laughs> oh, wonderful. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you so much. This has been so enjoyable for me and what wonderful work you're doing um, with each of these podcasts. So thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Where can we find more information about you, your books, products, services, and future projects? You can follow The Situation, A Radical Journey Through Sisterhood on Instagram at hashtag The Situation Book or the at sign The Situation Book. You can also uh, find the website for the foundation at the cgbfoundation.org because um, Carolyn Glasso Bailey Foundation is a little much to look up. So cbgfoundation.org. And um, you can also find the situation on Amazon. You can pre-order right now through Kindle or in paperback. And there's a whole author page to read about me as well. If you just look up my name, Lila Glasso Francis, or the situation, A Radical Journey Through Sisterhood. Great. Thank you so much again, Lila. And we'll talk soon. Okay. Thank you. Bye for now. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening. To learn more about Lila Glasso Francis, please visit her website, carolynglassobaileyfoundation.org. To learn more about this podcast, please visit fitforjoy.org slash podcast. I want to thank the Patreon members, Lawrence McGrath, Mark Basden, Terry Clayton, and Aidan Bigrock. Thank you again for listening, and bye for now.